Hey there, one quick message. Hope you're enjoying our podcast episodes so far. We're interviewing these entrepreneurs to help inspire you and other listeners to build and grow your businesses. So if you like the podcast and know someone else who could benefit from listening, then please pass it on. Thanks again for tuning in. And I've talked about this a few times and I think it was two or three months ago, I looked back and I saved all those negative emails into a file. And at the time I saved them because like, if something happens to me, look in this file. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm serious, I told my wife that. <laughs> And it was something that there was so much pressure leading up to this. You know, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and going out into my living room and getting my hands and knees and praying like, God, please make sure this doesn't fail on me. I had no idea what I was doing. Another athletic director there, we were sitting there and he looked at me and said, we got the land and the fans. What do you have? If you've been doing something one way for nine years, that's a tough conversation to have. You don't want to just crush these people's spirits. And so it was funny, though, because at the time we were like, what's this guy doing here? Is he spying on us? Is he interested in us, too? We were so paranoid. I started my day with one of your podcasts this morning. <laughs> yeah, which one? Let's see. Which one was this? The guy from South Africa. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of those from July. The technology password encryption company. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's funny. Yeah, I had two South African guys. I've listened to both of them, oh, believe yeah. it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What would you think? It was good, man. I only got the first 20 minutes of it. My run was a little bit shorter this morning because of last week being sick. Yeah. I'm just now trying to get back in the saddle. And I did listen to, it's funny how the belay one worked out, man. I'm serious. We just got an intro from our CFO introducing our new belay assistant this weekend. I was like, that's just crazy, man. Thinking about that. And I forwarded that to my CFO right after I listened to it. And he's like, I don't know about this. So, you know, those things just don't really work out most of the time, but I'll look into it. Mm-hmm. He came back and said, man, this is actually a godsend. This is exactly what we need because they're focused on Expensify. Right. That's what he needs. Somebody to work on our Expensify account. So. Well, perfect. I was glad at least it's helped you in that point, you know. Yeah. Yeah, man. Cool. So I think I'm ready to go if you are, unless you got any other questions. No, I'm good, man. Okay. I'm good. And what I did is I just kind of like last night, just really just jotted out a bunch of notes. I've got like five pages here, so okay. we can kind of bounce around and just however you want to do this, man. Just I'll follow your lead. Okay, cool. All right. So yeah, if you're ready, I'm ready. My name is Parker Duffy. I'm with Tailgate Guys. I'm one of the two founders. I'm the CEO. I am 34 years old and I'm based in Auburn, Alabama. And that's where you're located today? Yep. I'm in Auburn today. Okay. Is your normal routine, you're just always in Auburn or do you travel a lot like with your company? No, I travel a good bit. It's kind of tempered out a little bit over the past year, but historically I've really put on about 150 to 200 days a year since we really hit our growth stride over the past couple of years. So I'm kind of a road warrior these days. You said your company's tailgate guys? Tailgate guys. That's right, man. All right. What is that? Okay, so it's very simply put, it's athletic pregame hospitality. Our bread and butter has always been tailgating, hence the name tailgate guys. And it's something that it evolved to what it is now. But really, at the core, it was turnkey tailgate packages through partnerships with universities and athletic departments to create these communities of tailgating. Obviously, I'm in Auburn. I went to Auburn. So the SEC tailgating culture around college football is, is robust, to say the least. And it's always been done in green spaces or parks, things like that, rather than a parking lot. We took this concept of hosting groups of 10 to 15 to 20 or so 10 years ago. That's what it was. And now it's grown to something where it's very diverse compared to that. Mm. The basic concept is someone will pay y'all a burger group of people. Y'all will set up the tailgate for them and then they don't have to worry about anything. And they just go in and party and don't have to worry about cleaning up or everything else. 
That's exactly right. I think you and I even talked about this before. I compare it to beach chairs, beach chair rentals slash hotels. So it's something where it is full service. It's something where we have bellhops to meet people with their cars and then help them to cart their stuff over to their reserve space that has their tent, tables, chairs, linens, personalized signage, coolers with ice, their TV packages, their catering if they want that. And this is something that, you know, it's, I know it sounds very simple in concept, but, you know, just to put some scale behind it, just at Auburn alone, which is one of our, I think it's around 42, 43 locations we have now. We host around 400 groups that are between 75 and 100 in size now. So it's 10 years in, but we're hosting around 40,000 people a weekend at Auburn football games. That's just at Auburn you're hosting about 40,000? Yeah, just at Auburn, every game. Wow. That's like half your stadium almost, right? Or so? It is, just under half. Wow. So you got a lot of sport there. I guess that helps, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we got some season on us too. It's something that we've been doing for a long time now. Did you end up just starting this right out of college or you keep saying it's been about 10 years old or why don't we just go ahead and reel it back to when you went to Auburn and you're coming out of school and how you got to tailgate guys? Yeah, so I'd love to say this is something that me and one guy were sitting around our dorm room or our fraternity house or something like that and spitballing the idea, but it really wasn't that. It was something that was right after college. But being an Auburn grad, being someone that went to Auburn, it was something I was exposed to that culture of the big SEC tailgating the big SEC football scene, which is, is something that really is second to none. And if your listeners haven't experienced it, I encourage them to find a way to experience it somewhere. But Auburn was definitely instrumental in shaping my perspective on that, but also my personality and just the people I surrounded myself with. There's a lot of people, a couple of them that were friends of mine in college that have gone on to be entrepreneurs themselves. But, you know, I barely got out of Auburn. I mean that. I'm not going to get into the details here for everyone in the world to hear, but my degree was actually in horticulture of all things. I have a degree in landscape design. But I got out and I had some student loans and my wife, she and I got married right after she finished college. So it was about six months after I finished and about a week or two after she finished, we got married. I was actually in construction management. And this is something that my first job right out, it was obviously being landscape design. I really didn't know what I was doing, but I learned a ton about running a business. And I think it was probably a year and a half into that job where I actually met a guy that was doing this on the side at Tuscaloosa. He was dating one of my wife's friends and they came to stay with us for a game. He was working with a couple of guys and they had started a business. They were basically just hiring college students to squat and save spaces all over campus. So it was not official with the school. How much would they be paying them? Like 20, 50 bucks or something like that? The students? Yeah. I'm not really sure. I, that's part of the model that I never really dug into other than like an hourly rate. Right. So I imagine they're probably paying those guys. They probably were paying them a flat rate, but it's something around 10 to $15 an hour, I'm sure. But they were not official with the school. And so this guy came to stay with us and he was dating one of my wife's friends and it was for a game. So we were walking around Auburn's game and we were talking all about it. And as soon as he left, it was something I immediately put pen to paper, started working out the model, looking at really what the possibilities were. And it was something that I felt like was a pretty unique opportunity in several ways that I can get into in a second. But as it progressed, it was something that I knew that I couldn't do this on my own. I have some strengths, obviously, in business and sales and relationships and stuff like that. But I definitely have a lot of weaknesses, especially when it comes to ops-heavy business. And there was a guy that lived down the street from me that I met a few months prior at a Halloween party. It was something that was one of our mutual friends hosted the party. And we both had these two little houses that were right off of campus at Auburn. And we hit it off and we'd done some stuff, you know, working on yard work together, things like that. And as soon as the model started working together, I felt like this is the guy that I could work with. And I'll never forget, I called him. I was like, hey, man, come over. And he came over to the house, and we were sitting out the front yard, and I was telling him all about what we were doing. And I think it's probably 10 or 15 minutes into the conversation. He stopped me in my tracks. He was like, hey, man, I'm in. So that was really the jump-off point from there. Well, can I slow you down if you don't mind? I'll cut in from time to time. Yeah, sure. All right. So, yeah, so you were working with this construction, but when you're doing that, were you just not happy at that point, too, when you decided you wanted to kind of get in this tailgating scene, or what was the motivation there? 
No, actually, I enjoyed that job. And it was something that I was getting better at. I and mean, I probably would have had a future in that space if I had not been distracted by this. But I'd always wanted to own my own business down to where like when I was a pledge, my freshman year at Auburn, my pledge book on the inside cover, I had to write a little bio about myself. And I said, I want to run my own business one day. It's something I grew up in a household with my dad owned a small business. And so I was around that, the concept of it. So it was something I always had an entrepreneurial fiber to me. And my interest in construction was because one day I wanted to get into real estate development and be able to manage the process myself too. But it was always in my mind. And then this opportunity just, it really, you know, right place, right time, right type of execution fell in my lap. And it was just, I really felt like it was lightning in a bottle, which it turned out that it was. It wasn't that I was unhappy by any means. It was just something that, and I will say this, this is kind of a funny story. That was when I was in college, one of my very best friends, he and I were out in the Gulf of Mexico snapper fishing with his dad. And he told me, and his dad was a successful guy. He said that everyone that works hard gets one or two opportunities in their life to do something great. He said of those one or two opportunities, 95% of the people probably don't even see it. Of the 5% of people that do see it, most of those people don't take a chance. So that was always in my mind with this. I was like, I feel like this is really unique. I really just wanted to push it until it either succeeded or failed. Yeah. And I've never heard something like that. And I'm kind of like touched just hearing that. It's good that you heard that advice at that point in your Oh, age. yeah. Well, and it stuck in my head too. That's the thing about it. I was like, that's stuck kid. in my head now too. <laughs> there we go. That's all we accomplished here. That's great. But yeah, I was a college kid. So it was something that it really is kind of crazy considering that was not my focus when I was in college. And it is stick. So, and I still use that to this day. We'll talk about more about your story there. But why don't we talk real quick, like how big your company is right now and how much you're doing in revenue. And then we'll jump back to the beginning of the story, just so everyone has a perspective on how much you have grown and what year that was and to what you're at now. Yeah. So when we started, it was something that we, our first year, I think we did around $225,000 in revenue our first year. And it was just Michael and I, and he and I were the only employees, quote unquote employees. We were paying ourselves around $20,000 a year for the first three years. So we were barely getting by. And then I think now we have around 22 offices servicing around 40 to 45 partnerships with around 150 full-time employees. Our gross revenue is something we keep pretty close to our best this year, but it's well into the 10 million plus range. Okay. And that's all within 10 years. Correct. 10 years. About a 10 year timeline. Okay. Yep. Exactly. Just so everyone has perspective. I was pretty amazed about the Auburn thing already, but now we have an idea of you know where you were after 10 years or where you are today. So yeah, why don't you jump back to these beginning years, these first couple months, like you were talking about with your friend coming from Alabama and kind of just hear from there. So going back to just Michael and I kicking around the idea and working out the model a little bit more day by day. And this is something that because of my background in construction, I was able to dive in on the spreadsheets, look at the legal side of things, try to organize a budget, a timeline, everything about that job really prepared me to launch this business. And Michael and I, like I said, I barely got out of Auburn. So it wasn't like I was Mr. SGA and nor was Michael. We didn't have ties to connect to the administration there. So literally our first call was to tent permitting. And I remember calling and saying, hey, this is the idea. We want to work with you guys on this. Who do we need to talk to? This lady, I'll never forget. She's like, you need to talk to this guy. His name was Bob Reitenball and he was the vice president auxiliary services at Auburn. So we sat down with him and he loved the idea. And I was 23 and Michael was 27 at the time when those conversations started. We met with him a couple of times and ultimately ended up bouncing around with Auburn and ultimately landed with athletics. The athletic department at Auburn is the one that rolled the dice with us and took a chance. And still to this day, I'm not really sure why they did this, especially considering that we had no experience doing what we were doing and had 23 and 27 years old, but they did and it worked. When you come to them, when you're talking about temporary permitting for the college game days, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's exactly what we were initially starting with. And it evolved into a full-blown, you know, exclusive partnership that we had with them. Tell us what you came to them with. Were you saying, hey, this is our idea. We're going to charge these people, what, like a couple hundred bucks or a thousand bucks and then set it up for them. Just tell us about the basic economics or what you went to them with. 
Yeah, so we came to them and it was something that I've looked back at this presentation a couple of times in the past few years and I'm kind of laugh at how <laughs> rudimentary and simple it was, but at the same time it made sense. And so I can see where they're going with this, but the model really was to keep it to these packages and that's where we've always gone. It's something that we always compare it to Five Guys Burgers. We don't want to have this fully customized system out there. We want it to be packaged options to where if you have 15 people, this is what you need. If you have 30 people, this is what you need. If you have 50, if you have 100, this is exactly what you need. So we outlined it pretty clearly with that. But at the time, it was just two options that we were offering. We had package prices on a per game basis and a full season basis. In the model, the relationship with them was a gross revenue share. So out of every dollar we made, the athletic department received a certain percentage of it too. So for them, it was something that we actually, the timing again, right place, right time with this is that there was this new green space that was being developed that was just outside of Auburn Stadium. They had no idea what they were going to do with it, but they knew they had to organize and they knew they had to control it or it was going to become chaos on game days. We were the system that was able to drop in and we were able to generate revenue for it. Wow. Okay. It seems like that almost worked out perfectly too. To have that. It did. Yeah. It did. How much were you charging these people like the initial guys here at Auburn? And again, this was just at Auburn, right? Yeah, we were just at Auburn. It was, I think we were probably baseline. It was for 10 to 15 people, it was around $300 for the least popular games, going up to around $400 for something that was more popular. But we offered a big discount for our full season. And we started off, this is something that I love. We started off, we had 53 groups that first game. Of those 53 groups that were with us that first game, 51 are still tailgating with us today, 10 years later at Auburn. It's really insightful. So as soon as you said you were setting up the Patreon, it was just like, yeah, I'll help this guy. You know, I take a lot of value from it. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I really appreciate that, man. Well, I was going to say, have you checked out our newest Patreon episode? Yeah, I was just like, oh, well, I'm in the car. I'll just listen to it, whatever. But I'm not getting anything out of this. And then you're like, wow, I'm not that naive or anything, but it really did open your eyes. So with Patreon, I heard it many times because you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit. And then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally, I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it was just constantly pushing it off, pushing it off. And then I would just like, fuck it. I already listened to all of them. So why not? And that's pretty good, especially being at your first year. Not even like you would think that first year, that there'd be some more hiccups, right? That maybe people would not come back. But <laughs> Well, you know, I was great about what we did. Is like no one had ever done this. We were kind of the creators of this space. And I've skipped ahead. There's a lot of stuff about just the way that the PR took off and the press, like AP picked up this story. And they're looking at us as we as young guys. You know, like I said, I was barely out of college and Michael was out a few years ahead of me. In some ways, I think we had a little bit of forgiveness considering we were Auburn grads, we were kids essentially, and no one had ever done this. So there was nothing to compare it to. So we had a little bit of cushion built in our own to where the hiccups might have been overseen a little bit better than if there was someone like ourselves that we were trying to compete against in the space. And I remember you said something about a percentage going to the athletic department, right? Uh -huh. I think that was really smart but to get them on board. Did you bring that up or like, how did y'all think of that? Because then you're aligned and they're like, hey, yeah, but they wouldn't have gotten any percentage from anyone else tailgating if y'all didn't come up with that idea, it sounds like, or whoever did. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
I can't remember where it all came from, but we knew that it had to be a partnership. I'll never forget the executive associate athletic director that I was sitting down with in that meeting. He and another athletic director there, we were sitting there and he looked at me and said, we got the land and the fans. What do you have? So at that point, we were like, okay, we're going to provide this service. And at that point, we knew it needed to be a balanced, mutually beneficial partnership, which is what it definitely became. Let's talk about that first year. So it seems like everything went pretty successful, right? It did. And I'll dial it back a little bit to when this was launched. And keep in mind, something that no one had ever heard of. Paying a tailgate really on a large scale in a university organizing a partnership to do so it was never really considered. It was not being done anywhere else in the United States. And so immediately as soon as this was launched, there was a lot of PR that was surrounded with it. And we had zero strategy. And really, in a lot of ways, we still have zero PR strategy considering, you know, like I said, this is the first time I've ever done a podcast. So I was still working full time and I did for a few weeks and this story went out and immediately it was something that people thought the entire campus, you had to pay to tailgate the message boards for Auburn. They lit up and they were, it was good and bad. And the blogs were writing about us and they were mostly bad. And there was a Facebook group that was actually started against tailgate guys. That was 40,000 members strong. Damn. And then the Associated Press picked up a story about it. And so like ESPN News ran the story, USA Today did. So there was a lot of press around this before we even put the first tent on the ground. But the thing about it, and you know, I was getting threats, you know, late night voicemails were coming in on our answer machine. And this was considering our bedroom was our office. So this voicemail was coming in on an actual answering machine that you could hear the people leaving the messages in the middle of the night. And it was right across mine and my wife's bedroom. So we heard all these in the middle of the night. And then getting emails that were coming through just you know, saying, they're come find us on game day, that we're killing the Auburn spirit. But all those negative emails and all those negative posts and all the message boards that were putting the message out there, they also put a link to tell you guys. So we blew up, man. We really did. That was the first time I really saw that all press is good press. Yeah. And some SEO juice there too, especially if you're getting all <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Which was something that I never even considered, you know, that was 10 years ago in the SEO world, how different it really is, but we were all over the place. My wife and I, we would get back from our jobs and email responses late into the night, early into the morning, and then get back up and you know, commute back to work. And then I was able to quit about two weeks prior to the first game. I was able to quit my job and go full time with Tell It Guys. And Michael did the same the first week, first game week we had. But yeah, the first year, it really the first game was perfect. It was like 85 degrees in early September in Auburn, which that's unheard of. It's usually in the upper 90s. So it was perfect weather. And we had a great turnout. And it was something that there was so much pressure leading up to this. You know, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and going out into my living room and getting on my hands and knees and praying like, God, please make sure this doesn't fail on me. I had no idea what I was doing. And that first game when everybody loved it, it was just such a satisfying, rewarding moment. And then as we progressed through the year, it steadily grew throughout the season, actually. And I remember it was the last game was the Iron Bowl, the Auburn-Alabama game. And Michael and I, it was probably 2 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning after that game. And we were still picking up trash. And I think he and I were under the same tailgate, picking up beer cans, putting them in the trash. And we looked it over each other and said, man, this is going to work, isn't it? We're like, yeah, this is going to work. And we knew it. And we had finished that first season successfully. And we knew we had something that was scalable that really could evolve into something much bigger than what we ever comprehended. Well, going back to the beginning before you even kicked off, and you're talking yeah. about that Facebook page against y'all and stuff. How did you deal with that personally? Because Part of you are excited, it seemed like. You know, you're starting your own company. You feel like you're doing the right thing. And then you have all these people who are hating on you. And maybe did you even think that might be a possibility? Because me, I wouldn't have thought so. I'm like, it's just a tailgate with, you know, like, what? how could this mean people be against me? So just tell us how you deal with that. Because those are obstacles that sometimes people don't think of when they're starting a business. Definitely didn't think that it was going to happen that way. And that's something that, to me, I learned a lot about myself at that point where the negative pushback that was coming towards me and all the press that was around it, I really didn't care, to be honest. It was something that kind of blocked it out. Really, it was my wife that she was the one that would really absorb it. It was hard on her, really was, because she's been so involved in this. 
she built our first website. She was our first welcome tent host. She was answering these emails back and forth and she still is involved. I mean, there's not many emails that are weighted that she doesn't proof before they go out from me. She carried a little more burden on it than I did. But you know, it's funny. And I've talked about this a few times and I think it was two or three months ago, I looked back and I saved all those negative emails into a file. And at the time I saved them because like, if something happens to me, look in this file. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm serious. I told my wife that. Yeah. And I look back at them and I'd say probably half those people are now guests of ours at all. So it's come full <laughs> okay. circle now to where they actually bought in. Like, okay, this isn't so bad. But the thing about it though is people thought this was taking spaces that they had been tailgating in for years. And so I understand that there's a tradition that people have. Like I've tailgated under this tree with my grandfather since I was a kid. You know, and so there is a lot of buying on that. Once people saw it that first game, they realized that we weren't taking those areas from them. After that first game, when people saw it, that died. No one had any negative pushback at, that, at any point from that point on. And we've had a lot of support from the Auburn community. Really, the Auburn community has been the foundation of our business. They've been huge support system what we're doing. Once they understood what it was, it was no turning back. You said that first year, how much money did you actually end up bringing in? Because you said you only got paid yourselves out like 20000 apiece for the first couple of years. Oh, that was it. That was all we had. Yeah. We didn't make money for a few years, to be honest. And it was something, Melanie was in grad school and I have no idea how we did this. Like I, <laughs> we both had student loans and we gradually started paying those things off with like just a marginal income. So we learned how to be very disciplined as people, which also transferred to the business. We've always been a very, very lean business. We hear, you know, I talked about the number of employees and the revenue that's well into the eight figures or so this point, but it's still something that you go to our facility. It's not something, we don't have like these flashy buildings. We don't have these big, nice signs that are out there. We still operate very lean. When you're doing that much work, right, the first year or two or three years, and it seems like everything's going to pay off, but you're only making that much money. Is that difficult to deal with? Because you would think you'd be wanting to get paid out a lot more if you're like working this hard, right? I think that's one of the obstacles that especially a lot of people who haven't started business don't think of. They think that the payday maybe might be within the first six months, first year. But when you have to keep working that hard and you're getting paid that little, how does that feel? That's such a great question. And I think so many people look at entrepreneurship and start their own business with that in mind. And I think that's a mistake. It's something that we never felt like that. We never really worried about the money and we still really don't. It's something that's secondary. We love what we do. And we've had a blast in what we're doing. And I can't remember who said this quote, but I'm really not sure where it came from, but entrepreneurship is, it tends to not be about the money. It's about the freedom. And that's something that we had. Like we used to joke about Mondays after game weeks, call them mountain bike Mondays, where Michael and I would throw mountain bikes on the back of our truck and go out to the local state park and go mountain biking. We did that once. And, but at the same time, the concept of being able to have that flexibility to really control your lives, that was more attractive. And we really found a lot of joy in through that process while we were not actually making that much money. Well, it's funny. I have a similar joke where my wife doesn't think I work jokingly, but I was like, I call them movie Mondays. I'm like, I could watch movies all day on Monday if I really wanted to, but yeah, I don't yeah. do that, you know, but it's about that, <laughs> yeah. the ability that I don't have to have be like all pissy and moany, like on Monday mornings. Like it seems like most people are who are going to their jobs, right? Exactly. Exactly, man. And as much as like, as bad as it sounds, I don't have that many hobbies anymore. I've lost them all because this business has really become my hobby because I love it. And it's another cliche statement that once you find something you love, you haven't worked a day. And I do feel like that. There's definitely some days that are more challenging than others, but I still enjoy going in the office every single morning. So the first year, it seemed like everything was success and you could see both of y'all. Why don't we talk about Michael for a second? Because we brought up yeah. his name. He was the guy from Alabama, right? No, he's not the guy from Alabama. No, he's my neighbor. He was your neighbor. Okay. He was the guy that I met at the Halloween party. I kind of glazed over that story, but he just lived down the street from me. But he was a fellow Auburn grad. He was a few years older than me. Okay. Well, how did y'all meet a little bit? And like, tell us about your working relationship because sometimes that can be difficult dealing with co-founders. Yeah, absolutely. And 
we did meet just from living on that street that's just off of campus that a mutual friend's Halloween party. And it was one of my buddies from college, actually. He was like, hey, you got to meet this guy. Y'all got a lot in common. Y'all to get along. And we did. We hit it off. I had an old house. He had an old house. So we did help each other on different house projects. It usually was more him helping me than me helping him because that's just the way he is. But Michael, man, he's awesome. He really is. And the relationship has grown so much. I'll come back to that. But he is an ops-minded individual. He is someone that thought of sitting down behind a keyboard and crunching out some spreadsheets or working on a sales strategy is, is torture to him. But getting out and actually working and leading people and connecting with people on site and organizing a system and an operation is right in his wheelhouse. And he's so great at that, man. He's one of the hardest working people I've ever met. I could never have done this without him. And I mean that. As far as working with him, this is something that I really do compare business partnerships to a marriage. And I think that's the only way that you can look at it. And I do think that it would be any business. I just don't know how people would do it on their own. And I think that there was actually one of your podcasts I was listening to. Someone said that that was talking about whether it's your wife or a business partner or someone, you have to have someone in the foxhole with you. And that's completely true. And I had two people and that was my wife and Michael. Michael's always been there with me. And, but the relationship, it's definitely tricky. And it's something that obviously being 23, 27, when we started, we've had a lot of growth personally on the way to where as our business has grown, egos and things like that have become something that we have to navigate. And we've matured together. And there's a lot of things I'm sure in 10 years, we'll look back and like, man, we thought we had it all figured out when we were in our mid thirties. And we'll laugh about that too. But the relationship has gotten to a place now to where, and I'll get into like the last three or four years of our just rapid growth and how it's just solidified our relationship. But man, I love the guy to death. And I felt like he said the same thing to me. And he called me the other day and he's like, you know, one thing I love about our relationship is that I know I'll always have a business partner. And that's the damn truth. We'll always be together regardless of what it is. 20 years from now, I don't know if we'll be on an industrial metal building somewhere or doing God knows what, but we'll probably be doing it together. Uh, well, how do you want to figure out what you're both good at? I mean, did you kind of establish that in the beginning or over that first couple of years, you all figured that out? Yeah, it definitely was something that evolved. You know, we definitely had those parameters where he was like, you handle this stuff and I'll handle this stuff. And it's just kind of grown. We've separated more and more and more. And we'd only known each other for three months. So like, I keep on talking about right place, right time. Well, this is one of those too much of a coincidence to be a coincidence that he and I didn't know each other that well. And it works so well. You really could not have paired up two people to complement each other as strong as we have. And I know that's something that you don't find a lot in business partnerships. Usually people tend to gravitate towards similar personalities as theirs, which is always as a bad thing. So we've really looked out well and the roles have just kind of become more and more defined as we've grown over the past 10 years. How about we talk about year two? We established kind of what happened and everything seemed pretty successful. If we want to go year two, year three, yeah. if you want to take us along the journey, that'd be great. I'll bring us year two, year three, uh, kind of all in one. We still working out of my bedroom and Michael, we were storing everything in his backyard, which actually we had every game weekend, we had an ice trailer that the ice company would deliver and we'd plug it into the back of his house. It's funny, we had to adjust his payment. His electric bill. <laughs> his salary right. of the week because his electrical bill. His wife was like, hey, this is, this can't happen. Right. I think it was year two. The city of Auburn actually gave us a citation. It's like, you can't store this stuff in your backyard. So we had to get <laughs> to their house. But still, year two, year three, we grew by 40 to 60% both of those years. It was continued growth. End of year three, it was still just Michael and I. Year four is- And just Auburn too? You're still yes. just Auburn here? Okay. Yes, just Auburn. And year four is where things really started to change. That was where 2012, we expanded to our second location, which was Texas A&M in College Station, Texas. And was there a reason that you chose there? Yeah, that was something that they actually approached us. They were doing some research on their end. They wanted us to come out there and they were new to the SEC at the time. So it was something that us having that foundation in the SEC, it really made sense for them to lean on our expertise. And it's been a great partnership ever since. We're still there. It's our second largest operation. Actually, it's our third largest. Our second largest is at Alabama. But 2012, I think there's a few key points in our business. Obviously, this, the launch, the first real key point. 
And then in 2012, when we expanded, that was another key turning point for us. We made our first two full-time hires, which are both still with us today and have expanded their roles. You know, they moved up and they're both in leadership to this day. But going from one to two locations was extremely challenging. It was something that Michael was actually expecting his first child who was born the week of the first Texas scene in game. So I was out there leading the cruise, which I've already said, that was not my wheelhouse. That was not my strength. So it was very uncomfortable in that regard. And I was, you know, driving box trucks from Auburn to College Station, which is about a 14 hour drive because we were so lean. And I was sleeping on the couch of our general manager in Texas a and I was sleeping on his couch in College Station. So it was one of those things that I lost like 25 pounds in the month of August and September, but it was successful. From that point on, we really started to expand one location a year. 2013, we expanded by one more location, 14, 15, 16, the same thing. We found a rhythm and it became easier. We started to really refine the model and find something that was more systematic. Well, one second, what was so challenging about that expanding to Texas A&M? Because this is a crucial point whenever someone might make those first new hires. It's totally different than what you were kind of doing before and there's much more challenges. Can you just tell us about more of the challenge of having a second place to set up these tailgates? Yeah, I think that it was probably because we were still trying to do things the same way we did at one location. We were still trying to manage it ourselves and, you know, really just splitting our time. It was the first time we'd ever had to travel for this job. I know that sounds so petty considering what I just outlined of my 200 travel days a year now, (laughs) but it was a change and every change is uncomfortable, but obviously that discomfort brings growth and development, but just going out to find a new labor force, things like that, that are, this sounds so simple to accomplish, but it was tough, you know, and we launched our partnership August 1st. So the first game was four weeks. So we really had four or five weeks to start our business. So we were getting inventory and hiring and you know setting up our office and getting the sales going. But you know, we had a really good partner in Texas A&M Athletics and they helped us get the sales going and we built that operation out to be successful right out of the gate. Um, just to make sure that everyone's on the same page, when you're setting up these tailgates, what's the basic, we've got a worldwide listening right. audience, so they don't all understand maybe the football atmosphere, but I think they kind of understand tailgating and maybe being to sporting events. But what exactly would you supply with them? And would it be any different than kind of what they'd set up with their own tailgate? Or was it for them really just the ability to not worry about it was the main value for them? It's both. There's a, certainly a convenience factor. And that's something that we really, we thought that we were building something that was based on convenience. And it's evolved now to where we see that because we're clustering hundreds of tailgates together in these beautiful parks and these nice green spaces just outside the stadium, we see now that we're building community. And that's something that has evolved a lot. And I'll come back to that too. But the service itself, this is something that, like I said, is packaged in tents, tables, chairs, coolers of ice, catering, the TV packages, all that. And it might be something to where you have that group of 10 or we have groups of one to a thousand. So whether it's a massive, large structure tent with several TVs and you know AV and different types of tables and chairs mixed in and some unbelievable catering and beverage services that are going on, it can be like that. It can be you know, swinging for the fences or it can be something just that simple 10 by 10 tent with six chairs and a table with a white linen on it with personalized sign. But everything is organized in that one space. So like if you've never been to see our site or if you really just kind of paint the picture, just picture it right outside of the stadium. If you're looking out over this nice park and you just see rows and rows and rows of these white tents that are all perfectly aligned. Like I talk about our quality control. This is something that is just really evolved where if you walk down one row of tents, you're going to look down the line. You might see one leg because all those tent legs are perfectly in line behind it. So there's so much detail into what we do and everything has a purpose. So, But going back to the community that we build. So when we started this business, game day experience, fan engagement, things like that were not a real big hot topic in college sports or entertainment in general. And now it's become a huge, huge talking point. It's something that everyone's trying to figure out how to keep people coming to the games, how to keep people coming to these live events. Well, now 
we're in the right place again in the sense we're building an event around the event and we're engaging with that fan base and that demographic that really craves that community, the millennials and the younger crowd out there, they really want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. And these communities do that. And then they create additional revenue streams. So in a lot of ways, 10 years ago, no one was talking about these additional revenue streams. No one was talking about fan engagement and community. And now that's a huge point. And we just got such a head start to be able to have our system in place already. Right. And when you're talking about like how beautiful it does look, yeah, it's these white tents. And if you go to your website, tailgateguys.com, Right at the homepage, you can kind of get a perfect picture of what you're talking about. Like, yeah, I could easily see how you have all these kind of little small communities that kind of interconnect. So, yeah, just to make sure we're on the same point. Thank you for bringing that together. Well, do you want to keep talking about the years and the expansion or how, how do you want to go on what, what can help us? Yeah. I think 2016 is a good place to pivot again. And we started a different division of our company in 2014 that's really complemented to make it more year-round. It's called pre-event resources. So that's something that we do a lot with our campus partners is to support the year-round events. We're using the people, the infrastructure, a lot of the inventory and the fleet that we have already on hand. But 2016, we had gone from one location to six locations, and we had done that one location a year over the past four or five years. At that point, in 2015, it's when we started to receive a lot of inbound acquisition interest. And that was something that we weren't really prepared for. I think a lot of people that are listening to this that are business owners themselves have probably experienced some level of this. It's a very challenging thing to go through. So we navigated the first process. It was a big global organization. I had no idea what I was doing, but we ultimately walked away from the deal. Well, 2016 came around and that same big organization came back and they increased their offer by 5X that year. Then four other groups came to the table and they were, you know, you might have had a family office, another large organization, some private equity groups that we had just started to generate a buzz and there's so much runway to what we're doing that there was a lot of interest. And we ended up walking away from every single one and turning on offers that would absolutely ensure financial security for me and Melanie, my wife and our kids. But it was really because none of them were the right fit for us at the time. And two, it was something that Michael and I, we sat down. I remember sitting down in my living room, that same house on Brookwood Drive, the one we put that first office and talking about like, if we went with this group, how would it affect this guy? How would this guy do it? How it like, we talked about the people so much and had a big part of our decision to not do it. So we walked away from all those deals in 2016. And then funny enough, I was on a plane, million hour where we were on our way to San Francisco. I looked down the aisle of the plane and I looked in the first class. I was not in first class. <laughs> Yeah, I looked down to first class <laughs> and this guy stood up and he turned around and stretched and I recognized him and his name was Ben Sutton. He is someone who started a business when he was in his early 30s in college sports and grew it to be a massive organization and ultimately ended up selling it. And I knew of him. I had read about him. I knew the story vaguely and I told Millie who it was. I was like, hey, that's that guy. You know? When we landed, we were at baggage claim. I went over and talked to him and we hit it off and he knew of our business vaguely. And I obviously knew, I obviously told him I, and I respected what he had done. And then he, we exchanged business cards and we stayed in touch actually. And a few months later, we started talking more seriously and it evolved into us developing a partnership. So instead of doing a full blown deal to sell the company, we ended up taking on Ben as a 25 or so percent investor. And it's something that it was one of his first investments personally. And it's evolved into his own private equity firm called Teal Capital. And so it was funny though, because at the time we were like, what's this guy doing here? Is he spying on us? Is he interested in us too? We were so paranoid at the time. But it ended up being just a great relationship right out of the gate. So at the close of 2016, we finalized our partnership with him. I really couldn't have crafted a better relationship and a better fit for us and what we needed as a company at the time. But the same day that we closed our relationship with Ben, we actually had been working parallel. Our, one of our longtime attorneys, myself, we've been working in parallel to acquire the group from Tuscaloosa at Alabama that had given us the idea. And those guys had since formalized their business with Alabama and had grown their business to be 
about two thirds the size of what our Auburn relationship is. And so we acquired those guys the same day, actually. So all in one day, we took on a minority partner and we acquired the group that we got the idea from. So 2016, it was a big year for us in that, but it's also something we were really positioning ourselves for growth in 2016. We started to hire regional managers. Our reputation, obviously, like I was saying, had been growing and we built out a reputation for execution and quality of service and attention to detail through all these athletic departments. And so we were primed and really well positioned for growth. And so we rolled in 2017 and we went from six to 16 partnerships in 2017. Okay. So we... I'll pause you right there if you don't mind. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Appreciate you doing the call here. Yeah. Favorite podcast by far. I love it. Oh yeah? Why's that? So I graduated 2017 from Michigan. I heard that shout out the other day. That was pretty cool. Basically two months after I graduated, I started listening to the podcast. Loved it. I think there were maybe 30 episodes or something out by that point. And I consider myself to be pretty entrepreneurial. Started a business last year. This helped a ton. And it's hard, I think, to find entrepreneurs. I was just looking for entrepreneurial meetups. And I think, wow, this is more of an awesome opportunity to talk with other entrepreneurs. The value is, I mean, it's insane. Like people make these types of entrepreneurial insight things are thousands of dollars. This is 12 per month, but one per month is like nothing. Oh yeah, I just want to get a feel for like you said the companies that were interested earlier. So they were companies that basically wanted to buy you out and yeah. Okay. So when you're looking at those offers come in, you weren't prepared for those, right? I mean, were you getting advice or like, how did you know that you didn't want to sell? Were you just doing the economics or just tell us a little bit more about that? If we have the ability to have someone extend us offers, like what we should look for and what we shouldn't. Yeah. For that time of life, I really had the right people in my life too. Or something like I said, one of our longtime attorneys, this guy that I have probably the closest thing I have to a business mentor who he is a successful business owner here in Auburn and he has a global organization that is such a cool business. And his attorney is his brother-in-law and he said, Hey, you need to talk to this guy. This is who you need to work with. And this was obviously going back to 2015 and he's still, I consider him a close friend and he's still our attorney in that. So he really is where I learned a ton about this. So the first go at it in 2015, I really was kind of winging it. And I look back at all the time that I put into it and all the mistakes that I made. And I just knew that there was more runway on our own. But then in 2016, this is something that this attorney, he really helped me a ton. And also the guy that his brother-in-law, this business owner, he, I lean on him a good bit too. But looking at these things, keep in mind we were six schools. And now I can talk about the fact that we're at 43. So I can say, hey, we were right to not do that at the time. But obviously hindsight is, is 2020 for sure. But just working with him on this and understanding, hey, if we do this, this, and this, you know, the business could be worth this, the business could be worth that. And two, it just wasn't the right feeling, you know, something that gut is important to me. And I think there's probably a lot of people that would agree with that. And the gut feeling was just never right. And so we want to stay in it. And obviously at the time I was 32 years old, I was like, well, if I sell this entire business, what am I going to do? I referred to this earlier in our conversation, that this was lightning in a bottle. We created this space. And now it's something that there's a lot of companies that are trying to compete with us on this too. So it really has become a space in itself. And it's rare to get that opportunity. And I knew we had that. And so we continue to want to push this thing. That's where the gut feeling of working with Ben and Teal Capital really was there for us to move forward with it. I mean, we even talked about this in the pre-interview. I try not to bring up too much stuff from pre-interview just because I want to save it for the real thing. <laughs> yeah. We're just saying like, it's going to be hard for you. It seemed like, I don't know if you saw this at that point in time too, 2015, 2016, but the game day experience, there's more and more kids who are going down and going to Uber down to a game. Or maybe like, for instance, I went to a Jaguar game the other day and I Ubered from my house to go down there and having a tailgate set up versus me driving down there and setting everything up and me Ubering at home. Did y'all see the potential even then of like, 
this game day experience is probably going to evolve where people actually almost need to have these tents there and everything if they really want that tailgating experience? I'd love to say we were that savvy to see <laughs> that side of things right. at the time, but we didn't. We just knew that there was some, I mean, six partnerships. And if you look at like the 100 plus power five football programs, there's just so much growth opportunity just on the partnership side of things. But to your point, the ride sharing has become more of a conversation in the past two years for us. So we have become more aware of is that these entertainment organizations and football and sports programs are going to have to start paying attention to that because people aren't going to drive. And just like you said, if you're not going to drive, if you're going to take an Uber there, you're not going to tailgate unless there's something there to help you facilitate that. So it's become more and more a talking point for sure. So you were six years in or so getting these offers to potentially have your company invested in, but then you waited till the right partnership. Just tell us what kind of evolved from there. I mean, you took in, you said the same day was pretty cool. Yeah. Get funding and take on this minority partnership. Why don't you just walk us from there? What exactly happened? Yeah, so we obviously that was the end of the year 2016. And so we started to work a little bit closely after we wrapped up that acquisition, which I learned a ton on that, but transitioning one company that's similar in size, rolling it into another larger organization. It's tough, man. I think we lost probably 75% of the team over from that company, but it was necessary and it's been good. And we saw really good relationships with people that were there that are no longer there. But yeah, tell us about that, because that's something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't think about either. I mean, that has to be pretty difficult, especially when you're saying that many people left. Yeah. And I think one of the things that was a challenging thing for me, I continue to battle this now, is that because people didn't know me, people didn't know Michael, they kind of created their own narratives about what this was. We kind of became the bad guys to that group out there. And that was the first thing from the truth of what we really wanted to accomplish. We really had good plans for them. Like I said, they're good people. Is that because you were from Auburn and they were Alabama? There's some of that. <laughs> and people don't know that's one of the biggest rivalries in the nation. So okay. It is. You should have seen the message boards. Throughout <laughs> some Auburn guys were running that company. But it's going well. We've grown that company a good bit too. But yeah, there was just a change. Again, change is uncomfortable. And there was a lot of, well, that's not how we do things here. It took us a while to like really have those hard conversations. And I think that's when we really learned a lot from those first few months of transitioning in is that you got to have those hard conversations. You can't let those things pass because a bad situation is not going to get better by not talking about it. Can you tell us about some of those hard conversations? Like what are the things that you would have to like say? Well, I think the one that stands out is just the personal relationships that these teams have with each other. You know, there's someone who went from being an owner that has a relationship with an employee who isn't performing well. It's someone that is not a good fit for tailgate guys. It might have been a good fit for that group, but it's not a good fit for us. Seeing that and knowing there's that personal relationship there from the previous owner to that employee that does not want to part ways with it, it's a tough thing to cross that line and really do what's best for the organization when those personal relationships are in place. There's people that were probably around for a few months too long or even a year or so too long that we should have just addressed it early on because they would probably been better off too and they would have been happier and the relationships would have been better after the fact. I could see that being an issue. The guy you're acquiring from has friends who are on there. They're his friends, so he just kept them on and they're doing okay. But now it's time to actually start financially making sure this makes even more sense. Yep. I could see how that definitely could be an issue. I mean, was there anything else that you're looking for or conversations that you had to have in case we're going to go through this? Yeah, I mean, it's just down to even their systems and processes and the way the operations were set up. There's a lot of things that we were more refined in, we were better at. And obviously our growth in the space represented that too. And saying, hey, I know you've been doing this way for nine years. Well, now we got to do it this way because we're going to save 10% on our labor by doing this. Well, if you've been doing something one way for nine years, that's a tough conversation to have. You don't want to just crush these people's spirits right. when you do that. So there's a lot of tact that has to go into that. And I will be the first to say that tact is something that I have probably lacked in a lot of those conversations 
expectations, I was probably a little more firm than I should have been. Because I never even thought about that too. And if you've got the systems in place, which hopefully you can bring up here in a little bit, but like how you're obviously more efficient, working a little bit better. Yeah. How do you gradually implement them to these people to, like you said, not kill their spirits? Because I could see you coming in and you're not trying to be like the ultimate hard ass where you have to do this. You kind of want it to be done that way. But at the same point, not crushing their spirit seems like it'd be hard if you're trying to implement new systems that they're not used to. Right. Well, I think that, you know, I would love to say, hey, yeah, well, we transitioned everything in six months. We, it, we're two and a half years into this and there's still things that we're still transitioning. So I want to be honest with everyone that's listening to this and let them know that that's not, we probably are a little bit behind. We probably should have been a little more aggressive on that. But, you know, I think we've really been fortunate to have a, the people that have stayed with us. There's a really good management team there that has bought in now. And really building those relationships with those managers has done a huge, huge thing for us as far as making the progress there. I contribute a lot of that to Michael. He's been very hands-on with that operation. It's something now we really don't even worry about it. It's actually one of some of our best managers are there. Like they're actually helping out at other locations across the country now. So this is six or seven years in at this point? Yeah, probably so. Yeah. Financially, how about personally? Is everything, you're paying yourself out like a good income now? Do you feel set? I guess you took in some money, right? Did you get any payout from the equity that brought in? Or like, just talk about personal financial stability or like kind of work-life balance where you are at this point in life. Yeah. So, I mean, at the 2016, we did, that was part of it. You know, I think that if you listen to the story about the founders of Lululemon, their first deal they took, they did it to take some chips off the table because they were so scared that everything was going to crumble from under them because they didn't come from means. Neither Michael and I ever came from means. My wife did not come from means. She was, her family was a military family. And so there was certainly some motivation to take some chips off the table. So we did, Michael and I did take some of the investment that Ben and his team put in, but it's something that's still like, the size of our business and the revenue that we produce now, we're still pretty lean on what we pay ourselves. We're not putting ourselves before the business in any way. It's something we still put most of our earnings back into the business because there's still so much potential out there. But it's definitely given us a foundation that I have a little girl now. She's less than a year old. And it's something that I want to make sure that we pay for her college before she was born. And we did that. So those are to give you peace of mind as you continue to take risk in business. And that was something that was really important for us there with that investment from Ben. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it switched your perspective at all. As far as you said, everything's still lean, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, personally, did you just feel like that was kind of like you made it to an extent, even though you're still making the business and making it successful? I mean, to me, I would feel like I could sleep better maybe at night versus like maybe those first couple of years, even where I saw the growth potential, but seeing the actual income. Yeah, it definitely gives us some peace of mind. I would never go so far to say that when that happened, we felt like we had made it. Right. But at the same time, like if you'd have told me three years prior to that, hey, this is what's going to work out for you. I would have said, hey, man, we've made it then. But yeah. that just goes to the point where it's just like there's always the next level, you know, and there's always more to keep pushing for, which is also a trap. But it's definitely given us a little more peace of mind as we move forward. Well, you're talking about systems and having the people at Alabama implement them or the systems that you would come up with over time. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? It seems like this has helped you become pretty efficient, especially if you have this many locations. Now you have to be very systematized. So just tell us what you implemented and what worked for you and maybe what didn't. I'll say this. I'll talk about the systems in 2017 and we were doing things pretty much the way we always had. And it worked at that point. And most of our systems were operational. It was something to where this is our timelines that we use for our setup crews. This is how we organize our labor force. This is how we organize our warehouse. There's a lot to that. And administratively, we have some very detailed systems, but it's still very manual. And it was okay then. We could still manage it. We had, you know, I was still very hands-on with a lot of these properties. Michael was still very hands-on when you have 16 properties. But 2018 
has probably been the most challenging year that we've had from the systems processes because we've definitely hit that point where what we've done in the past is not going to get us to where we're going. And we realized that this year and we knew it was coming, but it's hit us this year, which is good. I mean, it's something that there's been strain this year. We've made mistakes that we've never made. And since we found the company, but it's also opened our eyes to the changes that we have to make in an organization, which is pretty freaking awesome. If you think about that, like we're already a great company next year, we're going to be a force because of those lessons we've had. And the only way that you can get these lessons is by being the size that we are and transitioning to a much larger organization. So next year, we're well positioned to be a robust, large organization with the changes we're already making to our systems and processes, whether that's administratively, whether that's something that quality control and accountability, whether it's just the culture and the communication, things that we never had to worry about. Culture and communication. This company is called Tell You Guys. You know, when it was 15 employees, we didn't have to worry about that because everybody knew everybody. And now when you have hundreds and hundreds of employees across the country that don't know each other, there's several people in the company that I've never met, Mark's never met. And that's tough for us to really develop those types of relationships we've always had that made us successful. So building out more, you know, the org charts and the hierarchy to where our time is invested with people that needs to be invested with so they can invest in their people. That's the kind of stuff we're learning day by day right now. Well, can we get more strategic as far as does someone want to really implement things? I mean, were you writing down some of these operations like in a Word doc and sending them around at first versus like what you're doing now? What are like hands-on real things that we can maybe use in our business or what do you suggest? I would say we are still doing some word docs that are passing around. So that's why I think that like, don't do that. If you're a big growing organization, if you have offices all across the country, don't do what we just did. But there's a lot of, I'm just looking right now on my dashboard with Slack, you know, and different types of tools that we can use now just to increase our communication. But hiring practices is one thing that I think we've learned a ton about this year. We failed a lot in our hiring and to a personal expense too. There's a lot of really good people that we've hired in the past couple of years or the past year that are from close personal relationships from Michael and I that we like this guy. This guy's going to do great with us. This is going to be fun to work with him. And we really didn't put the systems and structure and the rigor behind the hiring process to understand that that's not a good fit. That person does not need to be in that role. And because of that, we've lost some personal relationships. There's definitely, I think that when it comes to our hiring practices, we've, we've learned a ton there, but we definitely need to take more advantage of technology. And that's something we're doing more now. We've hired some hires now that are focused more on that. They're going to help us internally with our communication and strategy there too. But again, I go back to just the organization, the accountability with your personnel. And that's something that's going to be a big change for us next year. Well, it seems like at least it's fresh in your mind. I mean, can you give us something that you would have done with the hiring practice before versus like what you're doing now and how it's going to help benefit you? So if we're hiring people, it helps. Yeah, you have to be determined if it's going to be successful. But for our senior positions that we have open that we're looking for right now, we're going to start using a talent assessment firm to really dig in on the true capabilities of someone versus just a gut feel. So many of these conversations, I'm the worst at interviews. I will sit down with someone for 30 minutes and I, I like that guy. I feel like they're <laughs> the breeze. Right. And I really don't dig in on what their capabilities are. And it's tough to do that in a face-to-face interview because, you know, we all know that people are going to tell you what you want to hear and what they want to think of themselves without really getting into what's true behind that. So doing more to actually circulate that person in front of other leadership, other people on the leadership team, get them more understanding and a more firm description of the challenges that come to this business. This is a very, very tough business. This is a lot of hard work, a lot of late hours that go into it and making sure that people understand that when they come in is important. And that making sure that their past lines up with something like that. People can look at it and say, hey, I can handle that. But if you've never done it, it's tough to jump in, especially if you've been doing something else for 15 years. Some of it, it sounds like you said you have a hiring firm. Are they looking at like personality tests? What are they looking at? Do you know exactly? To- yeah, they're looking at yeah, personality tests. There's a few different approaches they take on this it's as far as their capabilities, as far as what their strengths really are from personality, how they fit with our culture. So there's certainly some discovery that goes on with our organization to find out what's a good fit there too. We're not type of 
pat everybody on the back type of a company. We're a get out there, do your job, and then we'll celebrate after the fact type of company, which I know that sounds a little bit harsh these days, but I mean, that's just what it is. And certain people really thrive in that type of organization. And finding more people like that, this company is doing a dive to really help us identify people with those types of characteristics. That's sad, but it's actually true. I think like everyone just wants a pat on the back all the time versus actually proving yourself and working your ass off, even as an employee at first, and then we can celebrate. You're talking about like culture in general. I mean, how do you deal with this when now you have people that you haven't even met in your company right before and like trying to make sure everyone's on the same page? Because obviously that's totally different, like you said, versus in the beginning having five or 10 people all at one location. How do you deal with having cross-country people making sure they're on the same page? That's a learning process. Again, I'd love to say, hey, man, this is how I've got it figured out. This is what we do, but I don't. It's something that this year has been brought us to kind of an evolution to where rather than Michael and I really try to extend ourselves to where everyone knows us and everyone has a relationship with us. We've learned that's just impossible. And it's almost damaging when you try to do that because you don't really build the relationships that you need to with people, but you give them some type of relationship and then you ultimately end up laying them down. That's what we found. So I think the shift now is going to be more of us really focusing on people that report directly to us and make sure that they're empowered to take care of the people that they report to them, you know, and really having more of that systematic approach rather than a horizontal management system is something that we are going to go more and more vertical. So investing in those people that are right with me on a daily basis and right with Michael on a daily basis and then doing the same with their teams. We'll see if that works. <laughs> yeah, it's always a process. It's good that you like notice that, right? Everyone, when they're building a business, they're going to hit these roadblocks and then realize that they're only capable of so much things using the certain systems or they have to use some other process or realizing that has to deal with culture and dealing with people across country because not something that needs to enter your mind in the first couple of years unless you already grew that fast, right? You have exactly. to wait until it gets to that point and then try to fix it. Exactly. And that's something that for we've all heard this and it's so true. The areas that we have really been stung, the areas where Michael and I are really good. It was the sales side of things or the marketing side of things because that's stuff that I was really involved with, you know, the past year and then the operations side because I, that's what Michael's been so focused on. So it's almost like what we've been really good at is where we struggle because we try to hold on to it too long. And we're seeing now that that just can't take place. We've got to really build up those teams to support the operations as a whole. It seems like the last two years have been the biggest growth because weren't we just saying in like basically 2016, we're at six schools and now we're at 43? Yes. So this year we've grown by over 20 partnerships and we're not just in college football now. Now we have several NFL partners. We have major league baseball partners. We work with several bowl games. Our different divisions of the company have grown significantly too. So it's something now that Premier League, when they come over to the United States and play with the International Champions Cup, we're working with those groups too. So it's completely changed in the past two years. How have you dealt with expanding to this many things in like different sports as well? Maybe at first you weren't thinking maybe it was always going to be college football at first. Do you have a vision where you're hoping that it comes to all these different sporting events or just tell us like if you, I don't know, looking back nine or 10 years, if you're where you're at, where you thought you would be? You know, the expanding outside of college football is obviously, it's always been part of the plan, but doing so as quickly as we have is something that's probably, if I'm being honest with myself and honest with you, it's caught us a little bit by surprise in a good way. And I think we were a little bit naive to think that, hey, this is what we do at college and you drop it in on, on NFL and it's the same thing. It's going to work. Well, we're learning it's not. There's a lot of things that we're having to adjust and approach differently because of the different types of entities we're working with, which has been great. And again, it goes back to my point, the next year we're going to be that much you know, better off, but we're having to pivot and we're still the size that we can where we can adjust things on the fly. But it, it's definitely been interesting, that growing process of these different types of entertainment venues. you got to strike with Iron's Hot. I mean, if, if they come to you or you have this ability, then you're going to have to deal with it. But tell us about some of the differences. I can tell you perspective-wise, college football, really, to me, it's almost the Southeast. Do you deal with any Northeast colleges with the tailgating? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, we have a lot of success with our, some of our, really all over the country, like Penn State, Michigan, you know, they're partners with ours up in the north and out west. We've got USC and Stanford and the Rams and we've got, you know, some Colorado State out in the Rocky Mountains. They're all successful. And then Texas has some really successful operations. So across the board, we see that this is something people still want. Just because that big, crazy college football scene is there in the southeast, it may not be there other parts of the country. People are still drawn to this type of service. There's always a perspective where everyone says Southeast tailgating is kind of crazy, like SEC. But have you seen over college football has been pretty much the same? Or, I mean, is there a little specific differences? That's what I'm saying from like the college football experience versus the NFL. Like what have you observed or noticed or the difference in challenges? Because right off the bat, someone who's listening, they might, oh, it's just both football. But then again, I mean, you've got different type of demographics that you're dealing with and different expectations. What have you observed with that? You talk about the, some of your listeners saying, oh, it's just football, it's football, it's football. Well, that's exactly how we felt about it, too, which was a mistake, obviously, to begin with. But it is a different demographic. It is. And, you know, something's a big difference. Tailgating from Saturday and tailgating on Sunday. You got to go to work on Monday. Right. You know, so there's a different approach. You don't mind just going all out on Saturdays. You got <laughs> Sunday to recover. Sundays are a little bit different. And NFL is obviously, they're all for profit. So it's a little more of a business minded relationship versus where in college, it's a little more of like community fan engagement types of things. But the NFL, they still have that as a consideration. But colleges, you have such a alumni base, fan base and alumni base, customer base, where the NFL, you're seeing much more of the corporate and later purchasing groups out there. But like I said, we're only halfway through the first NFL season. So it's a learning process as we go to. If you're looking back on your whole story, is there anything like last lessons that we want to touch on before we get off as far as for entrepreneurs who are listening or anything else that you think would be important for people to understand when they're building a business? I don't think there's anything that people haven't ever really heard, but it's, you gotta, I think it goes back to the, the partnership side of things. You gotta have the people around you you can trust and that you care about and that care about you, that you can lean on, that can give you that perspective. And I'm not talking about necessarily mentors or something. Michael and I really haven't had as many mentors as we should have, but that's because our relationship was so complimentary. But understanding that it's going to be harder than what you think it is and the sacrifices necessary for it. Like we were talking about the first few years, we really didn't pay ourselves hardly at all. Being prepared for those types of things and get into the business for the right reasons. You know, don't get into it for that quick buck. Get into it for something you care about and want to make a difference in people's lives or want to make a difference in a space. That'll keep you going. Yeah, it's pretty evident even your story, right? Because if you're going for the quick buck, you probably would have stopped after season one, right? <laughs> yeah, I probably would have. I probably would have hung it up and gone back to construction. <laughs> I guess if I'm looking back, I didn't hear any too many down stories. Was there any a point? I mean, it didn't sound like you ever wanted to quit, but was there anything like that along the way? Because I think everyone has that issue at one point in time. You doubt yourself at some point, even if it's everything that you love. I don't know. Could you just tell us, was there any low points? Yeah, there definitely are. And I appreciate you saying that it doesn't sound like that because I feel like that means I'm very positive in the way I communicate this business. Yeah, which is good. Yeah, it is. Obviously, I love this. But at the same time, it's not all perfect. And there's times where in these different phases, in these different key points in the business where, like I said, sleeping on the couch of our general manager at Texas A&M and looking at the ceiling. I didn't sleep for two nights straight. I'm not joking. I really didn't before that first game. I remember laying and looking at the ceiling and thinking, how are we going to get this done? And is this how tailgate guys ends? And like, that's a horrible feeling, especially when you're five years in this business and you've built out a reputation and people are starting to recognize your business. That's a lot of pressure, especially for young and inexperienced business people. So there's moments like that. And then obviously the going into this inbound acquisition interest that we received, you know, and when that pressure really came on, what is this the right decision or not? Am I making the wrong decision by walking away from this? That's tough. And I know it sounds like, oh, come on, man. Like you're getting <laughs> offers that will change your life, but it's tough, man. Like as bad as it sounds, there are times like I'm not an emotional guy by any means. Everybody that's an employee, tell you guys, that's going to listen to this will second that. Um, but, <laughs> but 
there are times where I was completely broken by this, on my hands and knees crying about this, you know, and I know that sounds weak to say, but man, it, it can really weigh you down. And that comes back to having the people around you that you can really lean on. And that was Melanie for me at the time. And that was Michael at the time too. So that was a really a tough time. And then this year has been challenging. This growth where we've had mistakes and failure in some of the systems that have always worked for us and laying down some of our clients in ways that we never should have and never will again. But dealing with those types of things and addressing them head on is a tough thing to do. Having those hard conversations is not comfortable. Certainly had our fair share of those too. And thank you for sharing that. I know it's not easy always, especially given your company where you're at. I can somewhat relate. It's like what I was doing before with commercial real estate brokering. I mean, I had my own business for four or five years, but no one cared. None of my friends knew about it. Like they think I'm a quote unquote entrepreneur now because I'm doing a podcast, but now it's much more visible, right? Like my friends know about it. So if it doesn't succeed, then... I could be mentioned as a failure or, or it's way more put out there versus my company before. Like no one really gave a shit what I did or really knew what I did. And I feel like it's kind of the same thing for you. Like tailgate guys, that is out there in front of everyone. If it doesn't succeed, then everyone knows it doesn't succeed, right? There's nothing you can hide about it. It sounds like the cool thing to do, but then that's a lot of pressure built up because everyone knows you're doing this. You can't like hide behind this kind of company. <laughs> you are exactly right, man. I'm so appreciative of you recognizing that. And that's where like our first year, like I talk about the press when they picked up this story and they're talking about us, we had not set a tent out yet. And I'm thinking like, if we mess this up, everybody's going to talk about it. Right. Everybody is. And I'm 23 years old. And like, what am I going to do after that? Am I just going to be <laughs> that guy that just blew Life's it? over. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. At the time, that's what you think. Right. So yeah, it definitely, the visibility creates some pressure, which actually probably motivates you too. And it creates, in some ways, puts a chip on your shoulder when you have that negative feedback or when you have that kind of visibility and people criticizing what you're doing. And I think most entrepreneurs probably perform really well with a chip on their shoulder. And I'm certainly you know, from that same cloth too. Yeah, I'm 100%. Actually, I've got my personality test on my wall that I put up there to remind me. And one of the top two is competition. The other one's achiever. Because it's just yeah. like, you know, dealing with that negativity even in the beginning, like you were saying, that's kind of what fueled me even with this or the podcast or my other company. But so what motivates you now as like building up your company? And what do you see for the future for Tailgate Guys? I love the results of our business and whether that was that first game of organizing this space and seeing people have a good time, that was something that really surprised me. Like I said, I'm not a super emotional guy and I'm not the most conscientious guy. Michael is definitely much more conscientious than I am, which is something I need to work on. But at the same time, like I was surprised at how much I enjoyed seeing people have a good time because of something we did. And now I love going to sites that is having success that Michael and I have never really been involved with the customer side of things and walking around and people having no idea who we are. And just seeing these groups that are having a blast. That's great, man. So I love the results of taking something that's just a clean green space and building out this village. That's a lot of fun. But then also I love the growth of the business. I love working with the, our partners and organizing these partnerships with them and building out these relationships and watching our business grow. And two, man, like I really have enjoyed building these relationships with our team. Like I said, the first two people we hire are still with us. And actually the first five people we hire are still with us. So seeing their lives evolve. They were in their 20s and now they have families and kids and stuff like that. It's just cool to see something that was a back bedroom idea type of business grow into something that we're supporting families all over the country. If someone would say thank you for doing the podcast, what's the best way for them to reach out and say thank you? You can just contact me directly, parker at tailgateguys.com. And what happens if we want to get a tailgate where we're at? I mean, do you want to tell us like where we can go? And Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everybody should do this. <laughs> Tailgateguys.com. Go to our website and you can see there, it kind of breaks it down by location, by schools and NFL programs. If there's an area where you're going to go out there and tailgate, we've got it covered and we can, you can just purchase right there on the website or give us a call and we can help you out. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing your story here, Parker. And I guess I had one last thing that I wanted to mention that you knew one of our previous guests were saying in episode 60. Yeah. 
Who is that? Can you tell us a little bit of backstory? So if people wanted to hear about him and how you actually know him. That's Cameron Duty. Cam Duty is he calls himself Cam nowadays. But he's the founder of Null Hops out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And those guys, they've really blown he's Cam was an animal in college. He was such a cool <laughs> dude. And to see him coming out and building out such a cool business and he's so intelligent. Just hearing the things he says to you and conversation I have with him, he impresses me every day. So it's been fun to watch his growth. It's funny, when they were starting that business, they came and sat on my back deck at my house. It was right off that back bedroom, actually. And uh, we sat on the back deck and they were talking about what they wanted to do. And it was probably two or three years after that, that they had already started the business and it was going well to where that transition from them calling me for, hey, what do you think we should do with this? To where I'm calling them now saying, hey, how do you think we should do this? It's been a fun relationship and watching those guys, I really respect and admire what they've done. So yeah, if you want to hear a little bit more about his story and how Parker knows Cam, this episode 60. Well, thank you again, Parker, for taking the time to share your story. We really appreciate it. No, thank you, Austin. If you liked this episode, here's a few other service-based interviews to tickle your fancy. Episode 62 with Andrew Sykes of Habits at Work. Episode 64 with Carl Meyer of Abundant. Or episode 68 with John Sharp of Staff Source. In other news, if you want to leave us feedback about the show, Give us a call or text us on our new hotline. Simply dial 1-305-985-3469. The best comments, questions, or feedback will be shared on a future episode. So don't be scared to get creative. As always, thanks for tuning in and sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and loved ones. Wait, 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 hold on. Before you go... I'm sure you know by now we have plenty of Patreon episodes to fill your passion bucket up with more business interviews. So check that out. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.